Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, today we're going to be talking about China's rapidly changing security presence in Africa. If you've been paying attention over the past five to ten years, you know, there's been this shift that's taken place, and it's really in some ways been subtle but very, very profound. Now, China has long been, I'd say probably for the past ten years, present and active in multinational peacekeeping operations in Africa. Let's go through a very quick list here. There's, you know, uh, anti-piracy operations that are going off the coast of Somalia since 2008. The Chinese have been in the DRC doing secure, uh, doing engineering and medical. The Chinese were active in Liberia and Guinea and West Africa during the Ebola epidemic. And more recently in South Sudan, Chinese forces are there kind of doing post-stabilization peacekeeping operations, which even though the fact that it's not very stable right now, and of course in Mali, most recently uh, between Mali and South Sudan, three peacekeepers have actually been killed. Yes, and now we we seeing a, a big shift where, in the past, as as you mentioned, in the past they were they were mostly doing support work. So that you saw a lot of Chinese engineers, a lot of Chinese medical teams, and those fit into wider Chinese aid based kind of assistance to Africa. So there were a lot of medical team, Chinese medical teams in Africa anyway, and some of them were under the auspices of the UN. Now, however, you're seeing combat troops, um, and increasingly Chinese troops are moved into into places where they are coming into more more combat with, you know, kind of in, in war situations. Um, and we're also seeing a lot more casualties. Now, it should be pointed out that we've talked to a lot of experts that say even though the Chinese are deploying combat infantry to places like uh, South Sudan and Mali, for the most part, Chinese troops are confined to their barracks and really don't venture out uh, beyond the wire. That uh, that may change, but this is their first kind of baby step into this. A lot of people don't realize, though, that China now is the eighth largest supplier of troops to UN multinational peacekeeping operations in Africa, and the number one on, of the five permanent members of the UN Security Council. So China's presence with over 3,000 troops in Africa today is growing. And of course, we shouldn't forget the fact that China is building a new military installation or outpost in Djibouti for the first time ever in its history, having a foreign base. Now, this whole picture of the Chinese security operations in Africa was kind of put into focus recently when the European Council on Foreign Relations published a paper, a fascinating paper, uh, written by Mathieu Duchatel, Richard Gowan, and Manuel lafont Rapnui uh, on the changing global security shift in Africa by the Chinese. And it was a fascinating paper, which I highly recommend, and we're going to have links to it all over our website. But it really laid out point by point all the things that have been going on. I asked them about this in my conversation with Mathieu and Manuel. Um, I asked them about how how this the Chinese presence and the Chinese participation in African peacekeeping has changed, and how we can what how, what kind of predictions we can make about the future, especially in the context of the fact that there will now be a military base in Djibouti. Um, it's a long story uh, that China started by being very reluctant and even opposed to peacekeeping was not contributing to peacekeeping operation, was not paying its due to the peacekeeping UN budget, etc. And it's uh, slowly evolved uh, all along the 80s. And at the end of the 80s, China began to contribute troops uh, and, and not just support it from a distance, but actually be an actor into UN peacekeeping. Uh, 
Yet at the time, it was still a very limited contribution in terms of numbers of uh, military personnel deployed. And it was very often engineers and uh, um, doctors, physicians. Um, and, and those would be very consistent with the view that China was holding at the time of UN peacekeeping as being focused on peace building more. And engineers or uh, physicians with blue helmets usually reach out to local populations and help them by building bridges or doing uh, vaccine campaigns and this kind of stuff, obviously on an ad hoc basis, not as big development agencies, but that's the way they cast themselves. And that was very fine with China. The, the changes that uh, has happened after that is in um, the uh, year 2000, where all of a sudden the number began to increase uh, quite significantly to the point uh, where now China is the eighth troop contributor at the global level. It contributes more than 3,000 troops uh, under uniform to UN peacekeeping operation. And the latest change and the one that prompted our paper is actually the fact that China now does not contribute only engineers or transportation or health units, but it has begun to contribute combat troops, uh, full-fledged infantry uh, units. It began uh, with a small uh, uh, platoon in South Sudan, then a company in Mali that was uh, three uh, years ago. And last year, it contributed for the first time a full infantry battalion in South Sudan. And that's quite significant. Mathieu, to which, how does China define peacekeeping? And, and, and is its, you know, kind of, um, Manuel made the point that, that there is a distinction in, in Chinese views of peacekeeping and peace, um, peace building. Um, you kind of, how, how are those, those different views, how are how, Chinese views of peacekeeping different or the same as, as other actors? I think it's more a question for Manuel. As an expert of peacekeeping, mm. I have a lot of questions. Sorry, Manuel, go, go ahead for that. <laughs> sure. Well, as, as I said, China had a very uh, low-profile supporting uh, domestic efforts based on non-interference doctrine view of peacekeeping. Uh, but the thing is that peacekeeping has evolved. The kind of conf conflicts that peacekeeping are tackling uh, have evolved. And uh, at the same time that um, China began contributing more troops, more personnel at, at the early year 2000s, it also began to be more supportive of what is called in the UN robust peacekeeping, where the use of force is not uh, an exception only based on the self-defense by peacekeepers, but can also be used to implement the mandate, especially in terms of protection of civilians. But that was from a distance, again, because when your troops are engineers, are transportation or health, well, that kind of use of force is not really a question that you're going to face, uh, except on very exceptional situations. On the contrary, when you do deploy infantry troops, uh, combat troops, then this is what is expected from these troops. So this kind of New York-based support for robust peacekeeping is now at a stage where it's, it's not just a remote support on principle when voting in the UN Security Council. It's something that the PLA troops deploy on the ground can see. And so China has, uh, has had to have a much more um, multidimensional understanding of peacekeeping, which cannot be just peace building, but has to be also 
taking into account the fact that sometimes blue helmets are attacked, uh, and that has been the case recently for the Chinese contingent in Mali, uh, that there are spoilers trying to uh, wreck down the peace process, and that most of the violence uh, in, the, in the theaters where you have blue helmet these days uh, are target, is targeting civilians and not just armed groups fighting one another. Um, Mathieu, as, as Manuel mentioned, you, a Chinese peacekeeper was recently killed in Mali. Um, how was that death received in China? Like, what, what was the, the popular reaction to that incident? And how do you think the Chinese people are actually seeing this kind of peacekeeping role for China in the future? Chinese peacekeeper who was killed in Mali was the 16th uh, Chinese soldier uh, killed on a UN mission uh, since China started contributing troops in the early 1990s. Um, the body of um, this soldier uh, was received in Changchun with full military honors. Um, there was um, coverage in the Chinese media. Um, he was uh, treated as a hero and uh, his family uh, made comments uh, to the Chinese media saying how proud they were that their son uh, had died uh, in support of international peace. Uh, I think it's a very interesting uh, development that um, China is uh, is covering such deaths on missions overseas. Um, the Chinese public has been very uh, sensitive with the question of Chinese nationals overseas and their security. Uh, it has become clearly an issue of uh, public concern in China, uh, with a lot of reporting uh, by the Chinese media, uh, especially when there are successful evacuations but also a lot of comments on the internet uh, by the Chinese netizens. Uh, this is something they care about. But in the particular case of peacekeeping, and this is really shown by what happened in Mali, um, the general impression we had, um, you know, looking at Chinese reactions, um, was that the public overall uh, was supportive of China's participation in UN peacekeeping, and there was a certain degree of pride. Um, in a way, this is also the way the issue is framed by the by the Ministry of Defense, uh, which communicates a lot on peacekeeping issues uh, on, on TV, on its website. Um, this, this is clearly something that uh, the Ministry of Defense is using uh, to portray uh, the Chinese military as a force for peace. And to a larger degree, this seems to be working in the paper, we make the point that a large attack um, against Chinese peacekeepers uh, with casualties in the future um, could really have an impact on the public opinion in China regarding peacekeeping. Um, this is a point we are making on the basis of the reactions of the public to the deaths of Chinese nationals during terrorist attacks or during... Um, unfortunate events in diverse different parts of the world, not only in Africa, usually the Chinese public tends to be quite hardline, uh, calling the Chinese government to intervene and, um, and, uh, and save these Chinese nationals. In the case of peacekeeping so far, our impression is that there is a consensus uh, regarding the importance and the benefits of having Chinese troops uh, in UN peacekeeping missions. 
Um, in, in the report, you, you show very clearly um, how the Chinese government has, you know, kind of has developed, uh, you know, in, in terms of its contributions to the UN over the over time. And then you also, you know, sketch quite a, like, very, very interesting and, and, and quite kind of, you know, kind of potent moment of when, when um, Xi Jinping announced this kind of massive contribution to to UN peacekeeping um, last year um, you know kind of surprising uh, all of these other other kind of um, leaders from countries who had all promised you know a few hundred peacekeepers and then he kind of steps up and, and promises um, thousands of them um, what is China actually getting out of this like you know kind of what what you know kind of if but to both of you, like, what would what would be some of the the main kind of advantages for China in contributing in this kind of way? This is a topic on which the third co-author of the paper contributed uh, most uh, even more actively than on the others. That's Richard Gowan, our colleague based in New York, and and one on the points on which uh, that he confirmed being based in New York is that definitely gives uh, significant influence uh, to China within the UN, not just on peace and security uh, issues. Um, you could also add that that does also give China's influence to the uh, within Africa uh, and in the African Union. The announcements made by uh, Xi Jinping at the 2015 UN General Assembly Summit on Peacekeeping actually uh, included not only contributions, whether troop contribution or financial contribution to UN peacekeeping, but also contribution to the African efforts for a regional um, collective security architecture based on the African Union and especially supporting the um, so-called African standby force and the African capacity for immediate response to crisis. So that that's the first thing, uh, I guess, which is the... Um, immediate diplomatic influence and clout that you get uh, from that. But obviously, there are also uh, much more national and direct interests uh, that uh, are interesting for China. The case that we make in the paper is that all decisions made by China about peacekeeping are not only related uh, to direct uh, economic uh, interests. Uh, for instance, there are no major economic direct interests for China in Mali, and yet it's one of the places where China's contribution is the most significant. But that's that's a big um, that's a big thing, and I think maybe Mathieu uh, would be more apt to answer that part. I think that China is clearly making a very strong political statement uh, in support of the UN as the as what should be the center of uh, all issues of international security. And there has been consistency in China's approach um, to, with regards to the, the UN over, over the years. Um, but I think what we describe in the paper is the conjunction of uh, two things. Uh, one of them is the emergence of China's interests, uh, security interests in Africa. And uh, on, on this there has been uh, what we describe as a paradigm change uh, in the sense that for many years uh, since the era of reform in China, uh, China-Africa relations were really perceived in terms of a partnership for growth and uh, the Chinese foreign policy in Africa was mostly supporting China's trade and investment interests. Um, and in the past uh, three years, 
largely as a result of uh, large migrations of Chinese nationals to Africa and the fact that there is now a very large community of um, of Chinese nationals, most, most probably over 1 million, uh, according to all sources, uh, including China's sources, um, clearly raises new challenges uh, for the Chinese foreign policy, and it has to protect them. Um, so we have described the emergence of a new awareness in China of um, its interest in Africa, and, uh, and the Chinese foreign policy now recognizes that there are security interests uh, to defend in Africa, and it was not the case uh, five years ago. And at the same time, the second largest driver of China's involvement in UN peacekeeping, or should I say the third overseas interest, is one, uh, making a very strong political statement in support of the UN is the second one. And third, there is also uh, the projection of uh, China as a, as a great power making contributions to international peace and security, which is a foreign policy interest. Um, I maybe would add ahead, one yes. thing. Uh, the, the interest of the paper, I would say, is precisely in the meeting between Richard's uh, perspective and my own perspective, which are much more UN-centric and based on collective security reasoning, and Mathieu's own work, which... Uh, helped us broadening the picture in terms of uh, China's security presence uh, in, in Africa. We obviously have a big focus on China's support for peacekeeping because of all the recent evolutions in terms of numbers, in terms of the kind of troops that are deployed, in terms of the, the, the Xi Jinping announcements that we've talked about. But that fits into a much wider picture about uh, maritime presence, uh, base, the military base uh, in Djibouti, uh, the way uh, arm transfer are dealt with, the military cooperation, uh, whether bilateral or in support to the African Union uh, efforts. And that's, that, I think, give um, precisely a, a kind of much more complete answer uh, to, to the, the discussion about the rationale for Chinese uh, implication into peacekeeping. And, and what Mathieu has just said is really part uh, of, of what needs to be uh, looked at. You, you mentioned the, the base in Djibouti. Um, and as you mentioned in the report, um, there are strong rumors that there might be other bases in Africa in lying in the future. Um, how, how do you see the, the Chinese role in, in African peacekeeping Developing, um, do, do you do you foresee a much more permanent and much more uh, widespread kind of role for Chinese peacekeepers, peacekeepers um, on the continent? Well, in a way, Djibouti and peacekeeping are two separate issues. Uh, even though uh, you have Chinese officers uh, telling the press that Djibouti might be used in the future as a transshipment point uh, or a transit point for uh, sending equipment to peacekeeping missions. Um, I think that Djibouti is a question in itself, in a way. Uh, it marks a very strong shift in China's foreign policy, in our opinion. That's the point we make in the paper. Uh, in the past, having no bases overseas was almost uh, a, a key marker of China's foreign policy identity and something that was used very much uh, in diplomatic discussions to make the point that China was 
very different from the United States and, uh, and some European powers. Uh, and suddenly, the Chinese Defense Ministry, after clearly years of debate, uh, makes the decision to build a, a facility in Djibouti to support the anti-piracy naval mission uh, in the Gulf of Aden since 2008. And the debates uh, in the Chinese media among Chinese experts show that uh, this facility in Djibouti is not only about supporting the anti-piracy mission, it's possibly also about other types of missions, also, although they are not clearly defined so far. But at the minimum, I think it will be part of future Chinese evacuation missions uh, conducted by, by the PLA, uh, because uh, this is not going to be a new development. There has already been an evacuation from Yemen uh, conducted by the PLA Navy through Djibouti. Uh, and uh, we think that this accelerated the Chinese decision to proceed with the construction of the naval facility in Djibouti. And the base, uh, because we think it's a base and not only a support facility, we call it a base, uh, is also about, uh, you know, possibly other missions. Clearly, naval diplomacy, China has a very active naval diplomacy in Africa. Um, the PLA Navy flotillas in the Gulf of Aden make port calls uh, around Africa, and they also go to other continents, but um, it's clearly an important element of China's military diplomacy. Um, and there are, obviously, uh, because this is a new development, questions regarding the use of the base in the future uh, and what kind of missions will the PLA carry out uh, on the African continent. For example, uh, will there be more Chinese involvement uh, in counter-terrorism missions uh, and so on? Um, so I'm answering part of your question on, on Djibouti and, and maybe Manuel can uh, also address the question of the future of peacekeeping missions in the context of uh, the post Xi Jinping General Assembly speech. Yes. Um, so one thing that Xi Jinping said in New York in uh, September 2015 is that he wanted to establish uh, a peacekeeping standby force of 8,000 Chinese troops. Uh, China um, contributes right, right now 3,000 troops. So that's a huge uh, number. The thing is, you have to put that into perspective. Uh, Right now, um, the discussions have not made a lot of progress since that announcement. Um, we even write that it probably took a little bit the Chinese uh, um, delegation by surprise when Xi Jinping uh, announced that. And the, the proposed standby force is, is currently, as far as we can gather, being adapted into a proposal for Beijing to keep one full brigade of troops. And that's still too south 500 personnel which is uh, very important with engineering and medical capabilities but also with uh, infantry uh, so-called combat uh, troops um, so you have to uh, reassess uh, the numbers and make them more realistic and you also have to realize that china is not going to contribute just to any mission because no one does that a very few country uh, do that um, for instance, right now there are um, a, a, there's a lot of interest in the UN uh, about um, 
planning for maybe a quick reaction uh, force that could have to be deployed given the situation in Burundi. Uh, if that happened, it would be very handy for the UN Secretariat to have troop contributing countries who already have uh, standby forces, standby capabilities that they can deploy very quickly. That's usually a big uh, problem for the UN. The thing is, if you look at the Chinese uh, position on the crisis in Burundi, it doesn't look at all uh, open to the idea that deploying a force uh, would be a good idea, even if the situation deteriorates. Um, situations that have to do with um, um, what China would consider uh, domestic affairs that would entail China's long-held doctrine about non-interference in internal affairs would probably be more of a, of a problem for China than an attracting uh, uh, temptation, an attracting proposal by the UN Secretariat. So the way, the way you can see it is that uh, probably this is not going to uh, happen only in Africa, uh, Chinese growing implication into UN peacekeeping, but Africa is definitely going to be a key theater uh, but right now, there's uh, including one operation where there are no Chinese troops uh, in the Central African Republic, in spite of all its difficulties for the UN. China didn't feel like uh, contributing to that one. Uh, and as I said, this is very normal behavior by uh, troop contributing countries. No country contributes to uh, all of them. So you have to put that into perspective and realize that the national interest decision, the arbitration between the various uh, option and possibility um, will still be very strong in the in the Chinese decision-making process, I would say. That was Mathieu Duchatel and Manuel Lafondre-Apnoui from the European Council on Foreign Relations. Eric, what did you think of their analysis of this base in Djibouti? Listen, I really thought, for the most part, these guys nailed it. And it was really interesting, not only the base in Djibouti, but the whole kind of footprint that they put for Chinese security operations in Africa. But it's interesting about the base in Djibouti, and in particular, the anti-piracy operations. Uh, but my point is going to touch on the larger kind of security presence in Africa, that what these guys don't say, and what I don't really hear anybody else saying, and, and I'm the only one saying it, so I could either be incredibly right or incredibly wrong, but let me just put it out to you again, because I've said it to you in the past, that I think one of the major motivating forces for the Chinese in Africa to step up their UN security participation is in part because it offers them this opportunity for real-life training either for their medical personnel, engineering, now combat, Navy personnel, that they can't do anywhere else in the world. You know, U.S. admirals have said long, long, or many times that one of the key advantages that they have in a naval showdown with the Chinese in the South China Sea is the fact that the, the admiral staff of the Americans you know, have been in combat now for the past 30 years straight. They have that experience. They've touched combat. And the Chinese are virgins when it comes to combat. They have not fought a, a, a Navy war, particularly a modern Navy war, uh, in 30 years, with, particularly with a superpower. They've never fought one. So this ability for them to get real-world training in places like Africa uh, is something very, very important that they simply can't get in Asia. They certainly can't get it in Europe. They can't get it in the United States. They can't get it in South America. So where else do they get 
on-the-ground training. And this is what I think is one of the key factors that's pushing the Chinese to build that experience portfolio in Africa and then to bring it back to their primary security theaters uh, in Asia, particularly in the South China Sea. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think from the perspective of a Chinese general, a kind of a 10,000 meter perspective, there is really no downside here. It's essentially, you know, you get training, you get great kind of relations relationship building with African states. You look great. You get, you know, kind of you, you strengthen your position in the UN. Everything is great. I think the only real downside is what we've now seen happen a little bit already is actual troop casualties. And I think what we've seen, especially with the, the recent death of two Chinese peacekeepers in South Sudan, is a real kind of blowback domestically. So it's going to be very interesting to see how how that's going to be handled domestically if more Chinese peacekeepers die, especially if they die in a, you know, kind of, let's hope it doesn't happen, but, you know, kind of worst case scenario, if it's a situation like in the, the old Black Hawk Down situation, uh, you know, kind of where, not, where they're not only where they don't only get injured or, or, or killed, but are dishonored in some kind of very, very kind of visual way you know if uh, it's it's going to be important i think for the the chinese authorities to manage the 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 domestic reaction to that kind of crisis yeah that's going to be tough and it's not just in the black hawk down scenario that we can imagine where chinese security forces uh, could potentially be either killed or embarrassed uh, but remember that, you know, Boko Haram is very, very active uh, in Cameroon and Nigeria, and Chinese troops may be pulled into that. Uh, Al-Qaeda claim credit for the attacks in Mali, and then uh, they've been pulled into the partisan fight in South Sudan as well. So they are facing a number of different risks, not to mention that ISIS stands out there who has targeted China. So, and one Chinese national has already been killed by ISIS, and one can only imagine that ISIS will not give up its fight with the Chinese as well, and seeing Africa as an opportunity to hit them. And so the public opinion could shift very quickly against Xi Jinping and these Chinese deployments if they're not handled well and if the casual account goes up very, very high. Uh, so, Kobus, that'll do it for this edition of the show. Uh, thank you so much for a fascinating, fascinating discussion with those guys from the European Council on Foreign Relations, Mathieu Duchatel, Richard Gowan, and Manuel Lafont-Rapnoui. Unfortunately, Richard couldn't join us, but we hope to have him again uh, on a future show episode of the program. We'll be back again soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at Eolander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa. China Africa.